Welcome back to Lilith, a tale I'll share a few chapters at a time until her story is complete. If you're new to the podcast, Lilith is a great place to start. You don't need any background information to enjoy this account of demonic possession, but do go back to January 7th's episode and begin with chapters 1 through 3. If you like this story, be sure to head on back to Ghosts in the Burbs Ghost Story number 1. There, you'll learn how this whole kerfuffle began. As always, rate and review the podcast, email your address to ghostsintheburbs at gmail.com, and I'll pop some stickers in the mail to you. Now, on to the story. Lilith, Chapter 4 The house was so much smaller than I'd imagined it, and the yard, if you could even call it that, was nothing like it had appeared in the photographs. Our new home was set back not 15 feet from the road, and it was immediately obvious that it was a very busy thoroughfare. On close inspection, the land was sandy, which meant patchy, scraggly grass. The hydrangea out front had been in bloom when the sale photos were taken. Now its blooms were a sickly-looking sepia. The unkempt rhododendron needed significant trimming, and that was just the front yard. I thought of my garden in Houston, the time I'd spent tending the bed so artfully planned along the patio. It took me some time to even sneak a glance out the family room windows at the backyard. My eyes avoided the view as if protecting me from the inevitable. I finally had to go out through the sliding glass door off the back of the dining room, onto the patio to see what the twins were fussing over. A Google search later informed us that it was an eastern box turtle. I stared at it and told the children not to touch the dreadful thing. I had a vague recollection that they carried salmonella. Jack walked across the yard to the back fence, if you could call it that. It was about five posts in the ground, across which green plastic netting had been stretched. "'What's back here?' he called. The twins bound after him. "'Careful!' I yelled, following them reluctantly. There are train tracks back there. You mustn't ever cross behind that fence. You hear me? But there's a creek, Carrie said excitedly. That must be where the turtle came from, Rosemary chimed in. I looked where they were pointing and saw that indeed the creek was there, wider and faster moving than had been described by the realtor. The terror vine around my heart tightened. The house was surrounded by danger, by things that could kill my children. I wanted to grab them and run back to Texas, to bang on the door of our old home, our real home, and tell the people now living there that it had all been a huge misunderstanding. I turned and walked back in the house after admonishing Jack to keep an eye on the twins and to stay in the backyard, away from both the road and that wretched fence. I looked up to see Michael standing just inside the sliding glass door, watching me, I fixed a neutral expression on my face, though it was too late. He'd read my thoughts. "'How's the yard?' he asked anxiously. "'They found a turtle,' I said, forcing a smile. "'Needs a landscaper,' he replied, answering his own question. I agreed. "'I'll add it to the list.' The realtor left, promising to send me a list of landscapers, handymen, plumbers, electricians— She mentioned the town dump, where people hauled their garbage on weekends. "'It's a real social scene,' the realtor had said, and I thought she was joking. "'The kids will love the dump swap,' 
People drop off toys they no longer use. It's like a recycling program for kids' stuff. Is there no trash service? I asked, unable to keep the panic out of my voice. Oh, there are services, but you have to pay for them, she replied. Well, that's one bill we'll happily pay, Michael said cheerily. After she was gone, I toured the upstairs and again found the space smaller than I'd imagined. Three bedrooms and one bathroom. The master suite was nice, with a generous walk-in closet. The twins' room was bright and cheery. Jack's room, less so. "'Where's Lilith?' I asked, realizing I hadn't seen her in some time. Michael popped his head out of the bathroom doorway. He'd been testing the faucets. "'I don't know. Maybe she's checking out her new digs.' "'The basement.' He meant the basement. The vine tightened further around my heart. "'What kind of a mother puts her daughter in a basement bedroom?' my conscience screamed. I descended the creaky stairs and took a moment to check on the kids in the backyard. They were kicking around a sun-bleached soccer ball that must have been left behind by the previous owners. I walked through the kitchen to the basement door. It was closed. I opened it and was met with a not-so-subtle blast of mildew. I shoved my guilt and anger down and called to my daughter. "'Lilith, honey, are you downstairs?' She didn't reply, but I heard movement from below— the creaking of wooden floorboards. I went down the green carpeted steps slowly, my hand on the creaky banister, trying to think how I could fix up the worn staircase as quickly and as cheaply as possible. I would go to Home Depot in the morning and order new carpeting. The ugliest they had would be better than this. Perhaps it might even take some of the damp out of the air. And dehumidifiers. We'd need at least three. All of this ran through my mind as I landed at the bottom of the stairs. Wood-paneled walls kept the space dark, though three bare bulbs blazed from the ceiling. I turned to my right and took in what the listing sheet called the children's playroom. Wood flooring worn thin, dropped ceiling, a built-in chest of drawers besides built-in bookshelves. I could see that at one time it probably had been a relatively welcoming place— now it was just depressing in a forgotten sort of way. Lilith? I called again, glancing to my left. There was a door open to what looked like the utility room. I poked my head in. An ancient hot water heater and furnace greeted me. A washer and dryer barely fit in the small room. They looked cheap and old. I thought of my front loader in Houston, of the woman who now lived in my house and how lucky she was. A noise startled me. A voice. Lilith? I called again, though this time it came out as a demand. Where are you? I stepped out of the dungeon-like utility room and stared down a short, dead-end hallway. Near its end was another built-in chest of drawers beneath the stairs to the left, and a closed door to the right. I walked down the narrow hallway, another bare bulb on the ceiling lighting my way, I made a mental note to hire an electrician to install a ceiling fixture in this hallway and added cheap light fixture to my Home Depot shopping list. I put my hand on the doorknob and hesitated, listening. I knew my daughter was in there, but something didn't feel right. Lilith, I said, quietly tapping on the door with my free hand before pushing it open. And there she was, standing in the middle of what was to become her bedroom, 
She'd been looking down at the ground, but lifted her head a moment after I opened the door. Mom, she said quietly. What are you doing here in the dark? I demanded, trying to keep my voice light but failing. I felt the wall beside me and found a switch. An overhead light fixture, praise God it wasn't another bare bulb, came to life revealing flowery wallpapered walls. There were two ground-level windows on the back wall of the house, offering a dreary view of overgrown shrubbery. I'd rip it out as soon as possible, hoping that would allow more natural light into the room. So, what do you think? I asked, laying on the forced chair. This is some real Nana wallpaper, huh? We'll have to take it down, unless you're in love with it, I said, in a weak attempt at humor. What? Oh, sure, it's okay. It's okay, I said, my tone still forcibly light. So you want to keep it? What? The wallpaper, honey. Do you want to keep it, or should I figure out how to take it down for you? I resisted the urge to feel her forehead. Oh, yeah, no, take it down for sure. Is this okay? I asked. I mean, are you going to be all right down here? Maybe we could do something with a master bedroom. You know, create a space upstairs for you with a family. Our closet is too big for us. Maybe... No, she said quickly. I like it down here. It's cool. Chapter 5 Good luck today, girls, Michael said before planting kisses on the twins' foreheads. Hey, girl, he said to Lilith who was sitting on the kitchen table, poking at a plate of scrambled eggs. Knock him dead, you hear? She gave him a weak smile. She looked so tired. He wondered if she wasn't coming down with something. You've got this, he said, giving her a kiss on the forehead. He found himself on the edge of choking up. He pushed the feeling down. Laura, honey, he yelled. I'm headed out. Good luck today, Laura called down from upstairs. Drive carefully. Love you. Love you too. Jack, where are you? Jack came around the corner from the living room, lacrosse stick in hand. Bye, Dad. Michael strode over to the boy and ruffled his hair. I'm off, he said as he walked out the front door. He didn't let the cheery expression fall until he'd pulled out of the driveway. He'd given up on the idea of taking the commuter line to work. It would mean too much time away from the family. Instead of the hour-and-a-half commute by train, which he found out included a 15-minute walk to and from the office, he'd opted for the 45-minute drive into Boston. But that drive proved to be as nerve-wracking as it was rage-inducing. On the worst days, the thought, what have I done, played over and over in his mind. Lilith dreaded her new school, hated their new house, and was afraid of her new bedroom. She felt buried down there, so far away from the rest of her family, and she couldn't get used to the sounds of the house settling. She didn't dare utter a word about it, though. Her mother had been flitting around in a state of such manic fragility that she feared any extra worry might just push her over the edge. The twins seemed impervious to their new surroundings, but then they always had each other. They never had to go into any situation alone. Jack appeared unperturbed, but Lilith guessed he was just as unhappy as she was. He just didn't want to look weak. She carried her untouched plate of eggs to the sink. You aren't going to eat those? Jack asked, hopefully. No, here, 
she said, putting the plate back down on the table. She looked at the clock on the microwave. Five minutes until she'd have to begin her walk to school. She refused to leave a second early, couldn't risk getting there before her first class began. The previous week, a know-it-all bore of a girl had been assigned to tour her through the massive high school. They'd had nothing in common, and Lilith feared all the kids in this town would be just as serious and focused on getting into an ivy as her tour guide had been. Spotting her backpack slumped near the front door, she realized she'd forgotten her glasses on her bedside table. She needed them for reading, wouldn't be able to get through this school day without them. Lilith would have to go back down into the basement to retrieve them. Before leaving the bright safety of the kitchen, she was sure to push the basement door all the way open. Something inside her did not want it closing her off from the upper floors of the house. She'd felt the need to do the same thing the night before. Even so, she'd found it closed in the morning as she climbed up to the first floor. She rushed down the stairs, stuffing down the feeling of unease, and walked purposefully towards her room, past the laundry room. That door was wide open, which was something she didn't want. She thought she'd closed it last night. She couldn't remember if it had been open when she woke up that morning. She pulled it closed, jiggling the handle afterwards to be sure it had caught in the doorframe. On to her bedroom she went. She spotted the glasses on the table where she'd left them and strode across the room to retrieve them. As she turned to leave the room, she heard the distinct click of a door handle turning and the creak of the laundry room door as it opened. She froze and listened as the door continued to open slowly with an unnervingly loud creak. It's defective. The door handle's defective, she whispered to herself. But she knew that it wasn't. It took force to open it. It was in need of oiling. Her breath was shallow, and she was desperate to run from the room screaming. You're being ridiculous, she told herself. She heard a muffled voice calling her name from upstairs. Her mom. But she'd left the door at the top of the stairs open. Who closed it? Her mother called to her again. Coming, she yelled back, then sprinted out of her bedroom, past the laundry room with its wide open door, and took the stairs two at a time before pushing the upper door open with more force than she'd intended. Who closed this door? she demanded. Her siblings and her mother stared at her, obviously startled. Who closed this door? she repeated, this time slowly and deliberately. Her family remained silent, unsure. Honey, it must have swung shut, or maybe one of us did it by accident, her mother replied calmly. I don't want this door shut when I'm downstairs, okay? Lilith said, trying to sound less panicked, though her heart was pounding in her chest. I'll get a little door jam for it, Laura replied. Um, all right, you guys. You need to get walking if you're going to make it to school on time. Lilith brushed past her mother to grab her backpack and rushed out the front door. Her siblings and her mother called after her with goodbyes and good lucks. She didn't respond. She was too distracted by the terror that had consumed her just moments before. Chapter 6 I stood at the end of the short driveway and watched the kids set off on their first day of school, consumed by a combination of relief and dread. Relief that I could finally let down the mask of contentment and optimism. Dread at being left alone with the weeds of worry and fear growing inside me. 
I watched until I could no longer see my children, then turned reluctantly and took in my new home. Objectively, from this distance, I could see its charm. White siding, black shutters, small one-door garage, classic window boxes on either side of the front door. But as I began to approach the home, my eyes adjusted, noting the chipped paint on the siding, the dying flowers in the window boxes, the rotted wood on the frame of the garage where moss had begun to grow. Michael and I had intentionally focused our renovation budget on the home's interior, leaving the exterior updates for a time when we had more money to spare. I wondered, not for the first time, if that had been a mistake. The home's weathered and worn appearance set the tone even before you'd gone inside, and that tone was depressing. The screen door screeched as I pulled it open and stepped inside the house. The old hardwood floors had been sanded down and freshly stained, a vast improvement from the battered floors Kim had forwarded us photos of while we were making renovation decisions. We'd lived in the house for three weeks, and the smell of fresh paint still hung in the air, though beneath it I detected a hint of mildew creeping up from the basement. I walked the circuit of the first floor, finding contentment in the mudroom shelves, past the unappealing view of the backyard from the dining room sliding doors, and stopped in the family room. Our furniture did not suit the space. Each piece had been carefully selected to fit perfectly into our old home, our old life. This home wanted tight, tailored pieces and subdued prints that allowed the eye to pass easily. My overstuffed white couches with their bright patterned throw pillows looked as out of place as I felt. I continued on to the kitchen, the only place I felt even remotely at home, and poured myself a third cup of coffee. We'd had the previously dark wooden cabinets painted a gleaming white and replaced the old Formica countertops with custom butcher block, an extravagance I'd insisted upon. We'd updated the light fixtures and installed a new double oven, though the stove was a strange electric contraption and the dishwasher was on its last legs. Again, projects for a less cash-strapped time, hopefully in the near future. I told myself that eventually I would feel just as at home in every other room in the house as I did in the kitchen. It had taken time to turn our last house into a home. This house would be the same. I pushed aside the nagging doubt that this house would never feel like a home and got to work clearing the table and wiping down the counters. I was listening to Motown and washing dishes when something made me look out the window above the sink. It was a boy he wore a black hoodie pulled up, his hand shoved deep into jean pockets. A teenager, I thought to myself. What the hell is he doing in our backyard? I rinsed my hands, turned off the faucet, and watched him. He seemed to be walking aimlessly, kicking at the dirt, standing still, then edging closer and closer to the back of the property. He must be killing time, avoiding school, I reasoned but something about him made me feel nervous. After about five agonizing minutes, he climbed over our makeshift fence and stood staring out across the creek to the train tracks beyond. He pulled the hoodie down, revealing dull, jet-black hair, the kind that came from a box. Abruptly, he sprinted forward and leapt over the creek. I heard the noise before I realized what was coming. It was the commuter line. The speeding gray and purple train came roaring past. Their paths converged, and it took me a moment to figure out where the screaming was coming from.
It was me. I sprinted to the sliding glass door in the family room and ran through the backyard. Scrambling over the junky fence, I slipped awkwardly on the stream bank and splashed into the water, soaking my shoes and pants but not even feeling it. I was thinking that I should have grabbed my cell phone to call an ambulance, even though I knew that there would be nothing they could do to help the boy. He must have been flattened, annihilated. Will there be anything left of him? I wondered desperately. When I took the first step onto the gray gravel around the tracks, I braced myself for gore. I looked across the tracks, afraid of what I would see. Across from me were bushes and wildflowers, but no bloody body. I looked left, then right, and spun around. The train was long gone. My eyes searched the ground, the brush beyond the tracks, and the stone for any sign of the boy. I jogged up the tracks, then doubled back. Nothing. I stopped and scanned the area where I saw him leap towards the train, but there was nothing to indicate that an accident had occurred. I was breathing loudly, and I realized I was crying. I crossed back over the creek and climbed over the green plastic fencing and ran back into my house to call the police. I reasoned the boy's body had been dragged further down the tracks, that it had perhaps been thrown into the underbrush. The train had been going so fast. I called 911. A boy! I yelled, holding back sobs. I saw a boy jump in front of the commuter line. It runs right behind my house. I can't find him. He's gone. I saw him jump, but he's gone. I don't know if he got dragged away or thrown, but I saw him. I saw him. I was told to calm down. I was asked for my location. I was instructed to describe what happened, and within minutes, I heard sirens blaring, and I brought the phone to the front door with me sobbing. They're here. They're here. A policewoman bolted from her car as I opened the screen door. Where? she demanded. I ran out to meet her and led her to the backyard, over the fence, across the stream, to the tracks. The boy was still nowhere to be found. More police arrived. An ambulance. A fire truck. The MBTA, the Transit Authority, was contacted. They had no report of a pedestrian being hit in the area. In any area, for that matter. Ma'am, are you certain you actually saw the boy get hit? It was suggested that he had crossed to the other side of the tracks just before the train passed. A stupid stunt. A teenager testing fate. But I was certain. I thought I saw... I trailed off, the fear dissolving, shame and embarrassment taking its place. With nothing more to do, the first responders left. All the while, the policewoman... The first one to arrive watched me with pity and something else. Probably veiled anger. I must have scared the hell out of her. She was the last to leave. You had quite a scare. Gave me one, too. Are you going to be all right? Can I call anyone for you? No, there's no one, I said automatically. She looked at me, concerned, furrowing her brow. I just mean, we only moved here a couple weeks ago. I don't know anyone in town. She nodded in understanding, though the concern didn't leave her face. Tell you what, you know me now. Here's my card. You call the second you see that boy in your yard again. I hope that you don't, but if you do, you call me. Deal? I accepted the card gratefully and fought back tears. I sensed that she was the first person who'd actually seen me since we moved to town, she could see all that I was hiding, how terrified and miserable I was. Thank you, I said. I'm so sorry that I caused all this. She shook her head and said it was fine, 
that she would have done the same thing. Anyone would have. Then I watched her climb into her patrol car and back out of my driveway. She gave me a curt wave and drove away. I fought the urge to run after her car, beg her to stay with me until my kids got home, unload all of my fear onto her and make her tell me that everything would be okay. I walked slowly back into my house, suddenly aware that not one neighbor had come to see if everything was all right, to ask what happened, not one looky-loo, not one while the hubbub. They must have just been watching from their windows. I fucking hate it here, I said, slamming the door behind me. Then I sat on my overstuffed, ill-fitting couch and watched old episodes of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and ate cereal until the kids got home from school. That night, when I told Michael what had happened, I downplayed the whole episode. I didn't tell him how many first responders had swarmed the road in front of our home, holding up traffic, springing into action for a non-event. "'We should fence the whole property,' he said. "'I don't like the idea of some kids skulking around the backyard, especially when you're here alone.'" This has been Lilith, a ghost in the burb story. Stay tuned for the rest of her chilling tale. Good night, sleep tight, and don't forget your nightlight.